Hello and welcome to episode 96 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. I'm beyond thrilled to be able to share this conversation with poet, activist, and scholar Judy Gron with you. Judy Gron is the author of over 15 books. Her publications include two book-length poems, several poetry collections, a reader, an ectopian novel, and several nonfiction books. Among her books of poetry and nonfiction are The Work of the Common Woman, A Woman is Talking to Death, Edward the Dyke and Other Poems, and her memoir, A Simple Revolution, The Making of an Activist Poet. In 1961, at the age of 21, Judy was arrested, interrogated, and dismissed from the armed forces on charges of homosexuality, an episode that she says shamed, angered, and ultimately radicalized her. In 1965, she picketed with the Mattachine Society in front of the White House and began writing and publishing pro-lesbian works, and she has not stopped since. Judy's poetry fueled the feminist and lesbian feminist movements in the U.S. and in other countries. Her mythic history, Another Mother Tongue, Gay Words, Gay Worlds, was vital to the gay movement during the 1980s and 1990s. Blood, Bread, and Roses, How Menstruation Created the World, has been influential to scholars working on ideas of human origins and was subject to a 55-minute film, A Flowering Tree, by Indian filmmaker Vipin Vijay. Gran holds a PhD in Integral Studies with a concentration in women's spirituality and teaches or has taught at California Institute of Integral Studies, the New College of California, the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology, and in private settings. Judy lives in California with her wife. I am delighted to bring Judy Gron's essential voice to you, listener, particularly if you have not yet read her work on the page. In this conversation, Judy and I talk about her new book, Eruptions of Inanna, Justice, Gender, and Erotic Power. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive copies of Eruptions of Inanna, courtesy of Nightboat, Touching Creatures, Touching Spirit, Living in a Sentient World, Love Belongs to Those Who Do the Feeling, and Hanging on Our Own Bones, all courtesy of Red Hen Press. A Simple Revolution, The Making of an Activist Poet, and The Judy Grand Reader, both courtesy of Aunt Loot Books. All Commonplace patrons will get access to a full-length video of Diane Wokstein telling Anana, accompanied by musician Jeffrey Gordon. As you know, Commonplace has no ads, no corporate sponsorship, and is made possible by the support of listeners like you. To find out how to become a Commonplace patron or a member of the Commonplace Book Club, please visit our website, commonpodcast.com, or go to patreon.com backslash commonplacepodcast. Commonplace has partnered with an individual who wishes to remain anonymous. In honor of this episode, $250 will be donated by this anonymous individual in honor of Judy Gron to the organization of her choice. Judy has chosen Amazon Watch from Amazon Watch's website. Since 1996, Amazon Watch has protected the rainforest and advanced the rights of indigenous peoples in the Amazon basin. 
We partner with indigenous and environmental organizations in campaigns for human rights, corporate accountability, and the preservation of the Amazon's ecological systems. All of us at Commonplace know that many of you listening are already giving as much as you can to organizations like Amazon Watch that are doing urgent work. We know many of you listening are giving time and energy to protect the environment and working for environmental and social justice. We know many of you don't have extra money to support an arts podcast. I always feel awkward encouraging listeners to become patrons, and I just wanted to take this moment to reiterate how incredibly grateful we are to those of you who are able to support us and have supported us, and how grateful we are to those of you who are working for and giving to other organizations, organizations we treasure, and to those of you who reach out to us through email or social media with thoughtful messages of appreciation for Commonplace. I mentioned in this conversation with Judy Gron that I recently had some serious health problems, including a cancer scare. I'm sure I will talk about that in future episodes. For now, I just want to share the good news that I'm doing really, really well. I'm not sure I've ever said that in an introduction to Commonplace, but I'm doing well physically and emotionally. I don't have ovarian cancer. I'm finally teaching the way I want, unapologetically, and loving every second of it. I love my new place in Washington Heights. I am delighting in my amazing kids, especially now that I'm able to be with them and hold the space for their difficulties without drowning. And I am just starting to feel the joy and freedom and rebirth of being divorced after a very long time in the underworld. I want to say thank you to two listeners in particular. One, a woman visiting Maine from Austin, Texas, who I met on the beach. Our dogs were playing together. And after a little while, she asked me whether I was Rachel Zucker, the one who makes Commonplace. And I said yes. And she said that she recognized me from my voice uh, and that she has been listening to Commonplace. She's an emerging writer who lives in Austin. And Commonplace has kept her company for a long time. The second is a listener who sent me a gorgeous page of letter-pressed text that says in red, you belong to you. It's at the framer, getting framed. I'm definitely going to hang this up. I just wanted to say to both listeners that these gifts, the gift of meeting, of appreciation, of you belong to you came at absolutely spiritually deep need moments for me. I want to thank you. I want to thank everyone who has emailed or posted messages of support for me, for the podcast. My apologies for not responding individually, but please know that your messages are received and treasured. I hope I'm entering a period of more space when responding individually is possible. In our conversation, Judy and I talk about her newest books, of course, and her long history of activism and writing. We talk about her relationship to nature and creatures and the importance of community, how to live, how to act in the midst of enormous change, 
We talk about the importance of having an origin story outside of patriarchy. And this conversation, the first that I recorded in my new place in Washington Heights, was a moment of such community and connection, even if I recorded it remotely with someone that I never have had a chance to meet in person. I hope you enjoy this conversation and feel as held and cared for by the conversation and by Judy Grand's work and ideas as I did. I hope you're all well and thriving or are moving towards a place of health and grace. Okay, there I am. There you are. Yeah, hi. <laughs> it's so great to see you. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Okay. <laughs> so this is my very first recording that I'm doing from my new apartment. So many changes are going on uh, in the world, certainly, but also closer to home in my own life. And so I'm in my new apartment uh, in the past in the past year, uh, I've gotten divorced. Uh, I've had some pretty serious health problems and that's kind of where we are, or that's kind of where I am. Um, and I wanted to just start by asking where you are physically, geographically in the world, and as much or as little as you wanted to share about where you are emotionally or spiritually. Well, I'm living in the Bay Area where I've been living since 1968 with a couple of brief journeys somewhere else. Uh, including upstate New York for about nine months. And um, I'm, I've lived in every part of the, of the Bay, the East, the West, the North, and now in the South. I'm on unceded Ohlone land and, and keenly aware of that. And in a neighborhood that is just perfect for somebody my age. I lived most of my adult life in Oakland, California, which is in the East Bay. But I've moved now to this area that is really full of trees and wildlife. Not, not that Oakland isn't. In fact, a turkey walked down my block just as I was moving. But getting to a place that's less urban where I can just take my short walks, stay out of the smoke, and stay out of the heat and do a little gardening. That's that's really where I am. It's not anything like any retirement, I thought, because I'm busy as a bee. I'm still, I'm teaching classes, I'm writing, I'm publishing, I'm trying to promote, I'm trying to connect with my peers and catch up with stuff. So that's where I am. I'm still on a fast pace, but it's not a train anymore. It's more like a fast racing bicycle. <laughs> mm, mm. What kinds of things do you grow in your garden? Oh, well, uh, uh, lettuce and herbs and onions are my success story. And the, the creatures eat everything else. So I'm, I'm raising creatures, I think, in my garden. And we have two fountains. We have lots of bird life. It's really lovely. Mm. And you live with your partner? Yes, I live with my partner. We started living together in 1986. 
and we got legally married in 2008. So that's been 30 something years. Wow. A great boon in my life, believe me. Mm. Yeah. It sounds wonderful. So, you know, I had heard of your work and I had had read some of your work. You're several really good friends of mine, including most of all a friend, Joy Katz, kept saying to me, got to check out Judy Grand's work, um, particularly the poem, A Woman is Talking to Death. But it wasn't until your either it was your co-writer or your editor who who contacted me about your new book, Eruptions of Inanna, uh, that I really was like, oh my God, this is, you know, as they say in Hebrew, beshert or meant to be, you know, mm -hmm. I have to, uh, this connection runs very, very deep. So, you know, I have a lifelong, very complicated connection to Inanna through my mother who did one of the real sort of central translations of Inanna with Samuel Noah Kramer, uh, my mother, Diane Wokstein. Oh um, my goodness. Yeah. So <laughs> did, did you not know that? That's why I did not know that. I'm fainting. That is just amazing. Yeah. And all and the praises to your mother. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so yeah, I really want to hear about, about, you know, that, that part of it as well. Uh, you know, the book is, uh, her, her book, uh, is dedicated to me and I have such a complicated relationship having seen her perform Inanna so many times, you know, knowing the story and the language and the incantation and the performance, the cues, uh, really like deep in me. Um, but also having been very embarrassed by the story because uh, she performed the story at Pepperdine University when I think I was 13 years old and I traveled to Pepperdine with her and watched all the rehearsals and, you know, at 13 when I was watching my mother in a very sort of slinky dress say who will plow my vulva yes. uh, I, it was i was not at 13 ready for for those parts of the story um and and not you know ready to have a lot of uh insight into my mother's sexuality uh let alone my own but, you know, my mother ha passed away uh, in 2013. And what I find is that I'm like more and more deeply connected to Anana, particularly the parts of the story that I, that I sort of wasn't ready for before. And that all of these connections between my mother, Anana, and the people who have been deeply affected and changed by this story that those those are connections that whenever they arise i have to follow them um so i just wanted to start by asking you some of this is you know very much clearly in the book itself but what was can you kind of share with people who haven't read uh, any translations of this uh, incredible uh, cycle epic myth when did you first encounter Anana? 
and why did you end up uh, writing this book? And what you know, what's what's at the core of your connection with her with this story? Okay, well, I'll say that you know my my biggest first connection with her was Wolkstein and Kramer's Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth, which I've been teaching ever since then, and that would have happened hmm, probably. 83, 84, somebody brought that into my life and I have been hooked on it ever since. Um, as for why, I had set out to do an exploration looking for some kind of, I don't know what to call it, goddess of the West. I mean, a, a goddess that could, that I could really relate to, connect to, understand and so on. And the reason I was doing that is because way, way back before that, in 1960, when I was totally alienated and dumped by my culture into the bottom, mm -hmm. almost, for being a lesbian, for being working class, and for being, you know, basically a very naive country girl from a small town, uh, just struggling to find her way in the world and not finding it easy at all, and realizing the levels of the structures in society that were that were guarding the walls of exclusion, excluding me and my friends that I adored and the gay drag queens that were in this seedy little bar that I found in Washington, D.C. and slicked my hair down and went to and came out drunk at two o'clock in the morning and walked home the psychiatric establishment, mm -hmm. the medical establishment, the church establishment, the, the Marxist establishment, and so on, all had erected these no's. No, you are not really a real human being, basically. You're not lovable, you're not beautiful, your life isn't real, your love isn't real, your sexuality isn't real. And I've been searching for the real ever since then. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to get into Mattachine Society at a young age, 24 uh, and 25, I picketed the White House, but mostly I was influenced by Frank Kameny who said we have to confront the psychiatric establishment. So the first two things I wrote did that. And one of them is uh, still in print the psychoanalysis of Edward the Dyke. Mm -hmm. Then it was that as a woman, there was exclusion. So feminism swept me up. And I actually co-founded an organization called Gay Women's Liberation. We set out to liberate the entire world. Mm -hmm. That was our goal on the, here on the West Coast, in Northern California. And uh, so, it's 1970 by 1973 i was i had written a woman is talking to death which is you know how do you take we had all this love finally we loved each other how do you take that out in the world and what about loving other people and when are you being effective at this and when are you not and when are they trying to reach across to you and not making it and I also started researching menstruation because I thought that that was key to understanding how what 
what had women ever contributed to culture? I was sure that women had, uh, but where was there any evidence of that? So I just launched myself at every origin story that I thought was standing in our way and with the intention of using poetic and eclectic scholarly skills to find some answers. But with Wolkstein and Kramer's book, something else was unleashed that was really enormous. That was this literature from Sumer from 4,000 years ago, from more than that, up to 4,500 years ago. And it was rich, it was luscious, and it had the descent myth, which is just one of the most profound stories on earth. A story, incidentally, that I think is connected to women's menarche rituals. Mm. So it's an interesting story that you just told about being 13 years old and seeing your mother do a performance that must have included some piece of that story, I would guess. And then her eroticism, which is so missing in religions, that they're just so deadly serious about that whole thing, there's not a playful eroticism in it. And she was all about that. So I've been on that track ever since. We have to come back because the two are so intertwined to your work on menstruation uh, in your book, Blood, Bread and Roses. But let's stick for a minute with Inanna. The yeah. subtitle, it, the, the title is Eruptions of Inanna justice, gender, and erotic power. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the choice and maybe if it's significant, the order of justice, gender, and erotic power as kind of the, the, the three things that, that these eruptions are either founded on or, or revolve around. Yeah, well, the very first story, and I, I took on eight of her stories to, to tell in my own language. And the very first group of them have to do with her sense of justice, how she dispensed it. The very first one, she sets out to, to look for injustices in her, in her land and just flies around like a little bird or an insect flies all over the place till she gets exhausted. And then she falls asleep, presumably in something like a human female form. Uh, and she is really, I have to say, molested by a gardener, a very crude young man who has pulled up all his plants. So he's not competent at being a gardener. However, I don't think that rape is the right concept for this is a goddess. I don't think that she can be raped. I think uh, he pulled aside her girdle, which had all the cosmic powers in it. And she doesn't say, oh, look how he has hurt me. She doesn't cry or whine in any way whatsoever. She doesn't feel wounded. She is out to do justice toward his transgression, which is clearly defined as not only about women, but also entwined with that about 
caring for the plants mm -hmm. and caring for these cosmic laws. So uh, her justice is enormous. And her solution is just so entrancing. I kept coming back to it because what she says to him when she finally finds him is, you will die. And what is that to me? You will wander the desert. In other words, something is implied of a power that she has that wipes him out. She says, your name is not, you're not going to be remembered for your transgression. You'd just be woven into my sweet love songs like everybody else. But you yourself, your soul will not come back. Mm. And that's a big clue that she is uh, part of her family, her older sister and her niece, basically midwife humanity back uh, into reincarnation mm. to live again. And that to deny that is a really big deal for people who, who believe in it. That she is just saying, coming back is not even a question. You're not going to do that. So there's so much in that story, and there's lots more. <laughs> there's lots more in it. Just a simple story, but that's uh, one of eight that I took on in the course of this book. And it starts off with her sense, not her sense of justice, but just the implications of the philosophy behind it and of what she represented. In a, in a philosophical sense, in a sense of life, death, and rebirth. Where was she? There it is. Uh, so that's justice. I'm wondering, um, when I was talking to my son again about this conversation, I said, what, what would you want to ask Judy? And he said, well, I think he said, I feel that there's that feminism is almost at this moment of apocalypse, uh, you know, that this anti abortion law in Texas, you know, these threats to Roe versus Wade, the way that feminism has in in a lot of ways become a kind of branding uh, sort of capital like cap like all intertwined with capitalism and materialism mm -hmm. and consumerism um the way feminism is is in a in a new way at odds with some of the lgbt and particularly trans inclusive uh movements which are incredibly important um you know you have a long view of the women's liberation movement or the lesbian feminism. Do you think we're at this moment of, as he said, apocalypse? And, and also what can we learn if, if in part, uh, you know, feminisms um, have always been about justice and and undermining these power structures that are so oppressive and exclusionary what does this story from anana what does anana's conception of justice does it help us at this moment that that feminism at least to someone my age feels very fractured hmm. um yeah can you 
Sure. That's a big question. It's a really important one. Um, I'll say yes, we're at an we're in an apocalypse right now, and it's not only feminism, it's everything. Um, and that uh, let me try to catch what you're saying. Feminism, in my experience of it, was always fractured. Mm -hmm. It's uh, what I think of it as this kind of union of advocacy for women, that that's how it started and that's how it has tried to track itself. But it's not as though it was, you know, mommy and she was going to solve all of our problems. Addressing her as a dyke in 1969, uh, we were not acceptable. Uh, the reason I wrote the common woman poems was that set of poems is my own imaginary consciousness raising group. But I went home with my hurt feelings and wrote these poems that would be more inclusive of, of women that I knew and had known in my life. And one of them is very overtly a, a dyke, a lesbian, somebody who fix, fixes her own cars. Mm. Um, and, but nevertheless is, is closeted, hides who she is. So, and, the, and those poems to spread all over the place, I think they enabled a lot more working class women to want to join in a movement of some kind. But a movement is how you move in it, really requires participation. So everybody who wanted to be part of anything that would be a movement that would move them from A to B or C um, just had to advocate for themselves. It's not like there was some maternal stream somewhere that was going to step in and advocate for us. There were other women who were coming out of their own experiences and making their own mistakes. <laughs> And there were, uh, there was I doing exactly the same thing, coming out of my own experiences and making my own mistakes and trying to make it work. So, and feminism, I think is only part of what we need. Uh, one of the most dramatic and exciting parts of it that as it developed was ecofeminism, which said, the society treats nature the way it treats women. And then African-American voices to say, yes, and the, the disasters in, of, of white America in their ecology get dumped into our neighborhoods. So this is a black issue as, as well. And for the, for the LGBT alphabet, I became convinced after writing Another Mother Tongue and really searching for traces of us in other cultures and other times that we are change agents by definition, whether we want to be or not, whether we say we're assimilating or not, you know, whether we say I just want a life and I never want to be called a lesbian or not, we're still part of change that seems to happen ever so often. And right now we're in the middle of enormous changes, just enormous. So my job is to determine what would be helpful. So I'm thinking 
Inanna is helpful. Her stories are helpful. The justice that she dispensed in that first story I told you, she did by using what had been an old, old in age, not, not old women, but an old women's uh, power solidarity having to do with uh, their menstrual blood that she flooded the whole land with it until uh, you know the god of water would tell her where this young man was hiding. Mm. <laughs> and she turned herself into a rainbow to see him. I mean, it's just, it has so much richness to it. Mm. It's just one simple story uh, about her, but there's so much that we could do with that, including that she was not going to elevate his power in any way, shape, or form, which is a very different approach than, than we all took in second wave feminism, which was to go to court, make arrests, make accusations, and then to see that in some quarters, men took that on as a cape of pride was appalling. It was like, mm. what are we doing? We're feeding the monster in some kind of way. Do you see, um, I mean, I, I feel so strongly that the work that you've been doing and that you're currently doing, which is to locate yourself and provide a connection for others to these origin stories and to open a space uh, for pre-biblical, pre-patriarchal uh, uh, creation myths, um, models, you know, that seems incredibly important for creating an imaginative space in which solidarity can thrive. Yeah. What else, you know, what are the other ways that, that uh, activists and radicals and revolutionaries today can flood the land with menstrual blood as opposed to uh, elevating his power. Oh, I, I think that people are already doing that. You know, the TikTok people who are flooding the sites with uh, false tips the particular ways that ACT UP would do some of its dramatic presentations of protest. They would bring a band with them, you know, or, or put an art piece all across something that they, um, that there's, there are things that uh, in particular, I learned to respect from the gay queens, the, the drag queens who were in the bar, in the CD bar that I went to, and they encouraged me so amazingly because they would be making fun of the police. Mm -hmm. They would, and, and diminishing the police by, by pretending that the police was one of them. <laughs> so they were calling out the hypocrisy of the society very vocally, very out loud, very dramatically, and no matter the price that they had to pay for that. And I just see that in, in so much of a particular kind of, of LGBT sensibility at its best, that it just 
is not going to take the drama seriously, is going to instead invent some other drama that's a lot more fun and that improves everything along the way. I just think that that is a, quite an amazing tactic. It really encourages people and keeps them lighthearted. Starhawk has taken that up with some of the ways that they have done uh, their drama and in the streets in protesting the corporations and so on. And of course it takes more than that. It takes people really, to, to me, it takes people really connect, reconnecting to nature in some very real ways. And I've been trying to write into that as well with Touching Creatures, which is almost like a sister book to Eruptions of Inanna because it's about consciousness permeating everything. And that's what Inanna, her poets, what they intimated she was, immanence mm -hmm. in everything, in the life force, but intelligent. So Touching Creatures has stories in it about creatures reaching across to me, mm. um, including insects, mm. and, you know, creatures you wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily first think of when you think of what we have been taught to call higher consciousness, but it's common consciousness. What if it's common consciousness then? when you beg your neighbors not to use snail bait and when you decide that you're going to just travel on electric vehicles it isn't because of some abstract moral high ground it is rather a protection of your friends mm. the insects <laughs> you know your friends the plants and and you feel them in the same way as you feel for your friends, what you would do for your human friends, what would you do for your squirrel friends, mm -hmm. or a tree that needs water, what would you do for that? I think that's a sensibility we need to promote. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think you're right. And this makes so much sense to me. And at the same time, I have this like voice in the back of my head saying okay you two white women talking about making friends with squirrels but look at the racial injustice and i know that you have worked extremely hard on an anti-racist uh you know from the beginning so i i just wanted to put that out there you know that this i i think I think at the heart of what you're saying is something very, very profound and essential. And the only way that we could have really come step away from this apocalyptic moment, which is to really see the connection between all kinds of life. But I can imagine someone saying, we can't even make friends with our neighbors. We can't even make friends across uh, the color line, which is a completely imaginary construct of culture. How, how, how are you imagining that making friends with insects is gonna work out? <laughs> I don't know, I can't speak for everybody. I can only speak for myself mm -hmm. and say that it works out for me 
that I feel so much more at home and so much less lonely in the world and so much less likely to want to get a pet. Hmm. You know, I read somewhere that someone did a study of um, different households, what and and they picked out two things that distinguished the white households uh, from everybody else. And one was ownership of a flashlight, which turned out to mean more likely to own the house. Hmm. But the other one was more likely to have a pet. You know, I have had so many cat families and even a dog living with me that it's not that I'm being judgmental and condemning in any way, shape or form, but I am just simply pointing out that if we're connected with living beings, the necessity to have something furry to reassure us that nature loves us if that's what happens. And I think to some extent that is what happens. That stands in for actual authentic relationships. Mm. So, so there's that, there's a, there's a way that, uh, I don't know, no, that's, that that's makes, as far as I can go with that. No, one. that makes a lot of sense. And it reminds me of, you know, the, uh, easy to ridicule, uh, uh, an appropriate to ridicule, uh, sort of thing that sort of like knee jerk thing that some, uh, white people say was, oh, I have black friends, you know? Like oh, I have a dog. I love nature. I mean, this is like right, exactly. You know, it's yes, it, yes, the yes. the uh, it's it, that's very superficial, uh, and 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 a, and, a, and a, not a, an authentic, as you say, connection, and not a a deep respect, a deep love, a deep connection, and a, a sense of 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 true commonality. That's more of like the fantasy of color blindness or the fantasy of you know i'm going to take my recycling out and that's going to save the planet yeah so let's go back to anana i i got us off on the justice path but can we go back to the second one which is gender gender right what is the difference between having between monotheism monotheism and polytheism do we need a theism at all what and what is the difference between uh, male gods and female god goddesses is there a difference and there is after after doing some explorations uh some study in south india uh, where i i did i I was really there with my metaphoric theory, seeing if it made any sense in a context where people continued to talk very positively about menstruation and to even be nostalgic for very elaborate menarches that their grandparents had had experienced as the end of a long line of such things. Uh, and village goddesses were everywhere. Are they different? And yes, they are different. They're more protective of nature for one thing, not so willing as is now happening for economic reasons to you know, pave over and cut down the sacred groves and kill 
this protected snakes and so on. Uh, so there's, there is something to this idea of women in nature being connected in the old days, but not women exclusively by any means, all the men who lived with them as well. It's just that the patriarchy, when it made its turn, turned away from both, mm -hmm. both women and nature in particular ways and began capturing them, controlling them. We've got to talk about metaphormic consciousness and and your theory of uh, the, the, the essential, essential nature uh, or importance of menstruation. Um, and I have to uh, be honest and say that I only came across your, your theory and, and realized there was a journal um, for writing about uh, menstruation and you know, the, the, the theory as I understand it, and please, you know, correct me if it's too broad strokes or, or, or not correct, is basically that all of the human rites and rituals, if traced back far enough, come from rites and rituals around menstruation, and that pre-patriarchy, it, uh, it, it, it's so uh, at the center of uh, human rites and rituals that in some sense, these were the very first kind of uh, civilization or group making rituals. Um, and that it, it and that metaphor itself is connected to metaphorm. Um, I mean, I just have to say, like, the past five years, 10 years of my life, I have been searching and searching for wise women, for texts, for instruction, information about how to live. Um, and my body, I, I feel like the absence of those stories and wisdom has made me profoundly ill. So I had a unwanted hysterectomy in 2018 mm. because I was bleeding to death. Mm. Um, but, and, and I was a well-informed woman who had been a birth doula, who believed in the natural wisdom of the body. And I still ended up like a third of women in the United mm. States with with ha having my uterus removed and mm. my cervix. Mm. Um, you know, my recent cancer scare was because they saw something on my scan and they thought it was ovarian cancer and it turned out to be a hemorrhagic cyst that burst, you know, dumping blood into my abdomen. And I feel like the absence of this wisdom and this knowledge and these stories and this experience has truly almost killed me several mm. times, mm. like physically, mm. not to mention emotionally and spiritually, uh, which also it has almost killed me. So when I saw, you know, that you have been doing this research and 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 this this theory that links you know, basically everything I see in the world around me 
to menstruation, my mind was blown. I guess that's not a question. <laughs> First of all, let me just say thank you. And I, I need to, you know, carefully read blood, bread and roses, uh, where you where you really go deep into this. But, you know, before we talk about gender connected to Anana, can you talk a little bit about metaphoric consciousness and how you came to this and why everyone is not talking about this? I know. I wish everyone were talking about it because it, to me, it just seems crucial. Uh, and I've just had my heart broken over it. But if from what we know so far, you're right that uh, when women study these kinds of ideas, they have an easier time with birth. They have more ease of, of connecting with those those babies in, the, in those crucial early years. We had students who said they had menstrual problems that cleared up after they took my class. Uh, mm -hmm. But it just is something that needs a lot of money thrown at it and, and serious people looking at it. And it's in the face of the, the patriarchy overturned women's rituals and then made them disappear and then turned them into something really negative to the point that it's not that our society isn't steeped in blood. It is steeped in blood. It's all over the place. It's all over the television. It's all over the movies. It's all over the hospitals, uh, all these shootings, all of the wars, because there's this superstitious reliance on men's blood rituals mm. and men's blood rituals grew up parallel to women's. Uh, they're extremely important. I have not had a chance to write about them formally, but you know, they, they led to surgery and advances in, in surgical procedures and, um, and other kinds of things, but they also have led us to a reliance on uh, police, guns, and, and warfare, and surgery as solutions to problems that can, can be solved in these other, other kinds of ways. So um, mindfulness meditation, for example, when when kids in, in the second and third and fourth grade learn that, they, there's fewer fights on the dramatic decrease in conflicts uh, on playgrounds, for example. It's it just something that for cultures that don't have this prohibition against talking about it, which is the, 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 the Christian menarche that I grew up with was don't tell your father, don't tell anybody this is happening, don't leak blood into your skirt if you go to school, don't get in the swimming pool. That's a ritual, and that's the one I was taught. What drew me to the subject was two things. One was how much pain I was in. 
with every period i i would it was just awful i would just lie down on the floor in the bathroom wherever i was if i was staying with somebody if i was in grand central station it didn't matter where i was i was in agony and sorting that out took some decades of effort but i was my attention was drawn to the subject and i began reclaiming it as so did several other feminists but i really took after it starting to write about menstruation as a positive thing in, in 1970 getting deep into this research that led to both a novel and my theory blood red and roses metaphoric theory uh in 70 by 73 getting my first article about it published by charlene spretnak in her anthology what is it called? The Politics of Women of Women's Spirituality. I think it's called that. Uh, she commissioned me, please write this mm. for me, because I was speaking about it, but I wasn't writing about it and have enough courage. And Beacon Press gave me a contract for the book, which took me another 10 years to write. Mm. They were amazingly patient with me while I I learned. And I had to step out of feminism to do the book. Mm because I realized that I was doing this book that was, yeah, 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 we have this, you don't have this. And then I was like, wait, <laughs> is that really the story? Is that the story that's in here? And that wasn't the story that's in there at all. The story that's in there is much more interesting. And it has to do with earliest, earliest ancestors coming out of the trees, realizing that they're periods had synced up with the moon. And that's a very uniquely human primate experience. Hmm. Uh, and they needed to protect their most vulnerable among them and the most precious, which was their 13 year old girls. So here came the seclusion rituals and here came all kinds of cultural things that went with it. And the boys were then, they then, imitated these rituals for themselves and they had to acquire the blood with all with cutting and you know making their noses bleed and and then everybody extended this to see nature as a menstruating mother because initially people thought the menstrual blood was the numinous substance it actually is full of stem cells but they thought that it just formed up into the fetus all by itself and that therefore it was the most creative substance on the face of the earth and they saw it everywhere they saw it in red ochre they saw it in red salmon they saw it in you know streams of red in the rivers when the algae came on the pond and they painted themselves with it to start giving signals of various kinds and here came a whole language. They had to make particular sounds so that their ants could find them hidden in the brush. So here came music, here came human language, and so on, so on. And the, the linguists, uh, like uh, George Lakoff has said, basically, we think in metaphor. That's how we think. It's very elemental to us that we do that. And I just, being a poet, I just wanted to believe that the metaphors in poetry turn into forms and can help create reality. 
So I made up this word metaform and applied it then to these menstrual rituals were actually formed our culture. The objects of it, the gestures of it, the sounds of it, the habits, the repeated habits. And it's it's such a huge thing, but I'm I'm trying to teach it in the face of uh, the prohibitions that have been laid. There's been enormous breakthroughs uh, since then, but it is much much easier to teach it to people who whose you know grandparents were celebrating menstruation than to teach it to those of us whose grandparents could not say the word. I mean, we're sort of uh, uh, right tomorrow night is the first night of Rosh Hashanah and a dark moon. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to do a ritual um, for my, I have finally signed my divorce papers and I'm living in this new place and you know, hopefully I don't have anything, you know, I don't have cancer, my, you know, I'm trying to see my body as whole and okay. And first of all, there's no ritual that I can find. Uh, you know, I went to some place called a witch apothecary and talked to a woman and she gave me a black candle that she had charged for the dark moon. So I'm making up my own, you know, thing, because there's nothing that I can find. There's no one you know, that I can go to, to say, where's, where's the ritual, you know, for this. But I was also thinking about, and, and, uh, you know, maybe your books cover this and your class covers this, but my son was talking to me about how after the destruction of the temple, that uh, the rabbinical, uh, uh, that the rabbis basically said, we're going to stop being, we're going to stop the rebellion against Rome in order to just keep our synagogues, to keep the rabbinical part of the religion. And up until then, there had been so many sects within Judaism and so many of those different kinds of Judaisms were much more matrifocal. And basically, when they started writing down the law and codifying things, he told me that one third of what they wrote was about menstruation. Wow. So this is so wild to me, because as you said, like, you know, how a person, uh, particularly someone who identifies as a woman, um, or someone who experiences uh, menstruation, how they feel about their body, their relations, their whole life, their power, um, their creativity has to do with whether their parents and grandparents, you know, how they talked about menstruation, if they ever talked about it, you know, all of those things. For someone like me who went to yeshiva for eight years of my life, I had to throw out the whole religion for a long time in order to just not feel uh, dirty, uh, to not feel defiled, to not feel impure. And it took me so long to realize that those kinds of ways of thinking about seclusion, uh, you know, don't 
don't touch a menstruating woman. So don't touch any women because you never know um, that that there could be something before that where the communal experience of having many people who were menstruating at the same time and their cycle was was connected to the moon and that this seclusion had to do with creativity with power also with vulnerability mm -hmm. um but but that also that wasn't necessarily a dichotomy vulnerability and power you know yeah i i mean i feel like at the age of almost 50 i'm just starting to see my way to a place to to even an imagined place that is a place of creativity and power now that i don't have a cycle anymore because they took my uterus out mm. i mean it's so yeah. wild yeah it's wild <laughs> it's really wild yeah and those those prohibitions which are from the male point of view and and men left alone not influenced by the female point of view because it was suppressed let's say that has that energy it's about energy which we just don't know anything about with energy we think of as electricity we think of it as gasoline or something because uh the subtle body energies are are no longer taught we're not taught about them and we need to be taught about them because they are a real part of life. They, they, they are the eminence. They are Inanna running amok without yeah. any form, without language, without let alone rituals. So all of the all of this stuff about controlling women controlling their own energies. And it's important to know that women created their own rituals. These were not imposed by on, on us by men. We devised them and men took them on and did their own versions. And both of those are notable things to happen. But the energies uh, that people, that peoples in non less materialist societies know better how to regulate the energies people in in materialism the energies are are suppressed it, there's not to be talked about there's no language about it and people who then are erratic are called insane and made fun of put locked away and they're all they're doing is responding to all kinds of energies that are in the culture at large which in our culture are very violent energies that emanate from the TV and the radio, uh, the news, the movies, all the time, to say nothing of your neighbors are shooting at each other. So it's, it's crucially important that our culture, we're in a transition, and it's an economic transition. And we're seeing that rampant capitalist-driven materialism is destroying the matrix of life itself. Those of us who see that, it behooves us to say, what else, what else, what else? And the what else is right there in the women's rituals. It's what was life like, what is life like when there's not such an emphasis on materiality? 
And, you know, materiality has its own demands. It, you don't go into a trance and then get in a car and drive it around. I am a prime example of that. You know, I, I, my, my family doesn't let me drive when I'm deep immersed in my work because I'm likely to go up on the sidewalk mm. or forget and change gear apropos of what? I don't know. <laughs> so I stay home and ground myself or I ground myself in particular ways when a lot of energies or I stay away from, you know, the scary ones because I'm susceptible. I'm one of those open channeled people, but we all are to some extent and we couldn't drive cars if we didn't know how to ground ourselves. But on the other hand, driving cars is not the end of and be all of life. Um, so to go, to get back to the energetic piece, which is Inanna, that's what she is, having some methods for locating that, how do you let your energies come about, what, where do you rein them in, how do you respect them, you know, how do you invite them, those are so important, they're so important. And I think that there, there are spiritual teachers who know how to do this mm -hmm. that might be beneficial, you know, that you might want to explore. Who is it that works with subtle body energies that can help you ground yourself all the way in your body and recognize when something is going off the rails, you know, and, and here are the ways to pull it back. And they may be very simple walk barefoot in your garden you know mm -hmm. anyway i'm i'm getting off on there but we are talking about what the sumerian poets were talking about inanna as eminence engages with us and in my experience loves us so before we leave this topic of gender, I want to come back because <laughs> right. I mean, we're never really That's leaving any of, these. Yeah. Yeah. of course, of course. And I just, I, I, you know, it makes deep sense to me that the way you are talking about women's blood and men's blood, the way we're talking about what we're women's rituals and what happened to those rituals made by women for women out of women's experience, what men did with those rituals and male or men's rituals. At the same time, I, one of the things that I love about the story of Anana is that there are these beings that are neither male nor female that uh that there that gender is more complicated than this binary of men and women and and that we see that in a lot of pre-patriarchal creation myths and stories that there's always been whether you want to call it a gender non-binary or trans or uh genderless or uh a third uh a third way a third experience 
there's always been the conception of of more fluidity and then that there were all these prohibitions um and now we're coming back to a greater sensitivity and awareness to how complex gender is i think one of the things that trips me up is as a cis woman how to talk about gender how to return to a a, a, a woman, women's rituals to the part of my own lost experience as a cis woman or as someone who identifies as a woman without being trans exclusionary without uh falling into this ridiculous oversimplified notion of the gender binary so how how do we how do we incorporate that uh complexity into the importance of like i don't think we're in a post-gender world i don't think that's the solution i don't think that's even a possibility it's sort of like a post-racial world is is naive as long as there is white supremacy and that we are swimming in and that we have to do something about in our lives if we're going to be you know moral people can respect ourselves um the gender binary has been one of my subjects of course because that i've been in that place i took a boy's name in the bars we didn't dare say our names because if they got in the paper we would lose our jobs mm. those of us who had jobs and the name i took was sunny uh you know hair slicked down boys shoes boys pants white shirt boys undershirt that was me in the bar at the age of 21. uh so so and i've gone back and forth back and forth with all of that and with my identification as female and with the agony of my uh, periods uh, and with this whole way of how do we even get defined as human beings from this position that position and the other position but another mother tongue is an exploration that i did of different ways that, and I called it all gay. I didn't have a vocabulary at that time. I do so respect that there's that there's been a finessing. There have been uh, new movements have come up and they have said, this is the language we need you to use. And that may change every every two years, you know, but that's that's what it's like to be gay. We're always changing our language. <laughs> So, so I lumped everything in gay and I'm redoing that book to try to sort that out some because some of the examples that I was using are more likely trans is a better description mm -hmm. uh, than gay because who knows what the sexual orientation of individuals were, but that it's worldwide and, and so many different names for and functions, many of them I found to my total delight are uh, highly respected, including these characters that are in Inanna's literature. And there's Galatura, Corgara, uh, and uh, Pilipili, the head overturned people that she also calls Reed Marsh, 
woman, Reed Marsh man. That's intriguing as well. And it's not that I have any solutions except what I've carved out for myself and I call myself a dyke and I've run down what I think that means. And it's a word that I think is an elegant and marvelous word. And I don't intend to ever give it up, never, never, never. And, and what you're talking about is, you know, these middle, the middle genders, and there are, there are so many of us and we are very different from each other and have very different kinds of needs. And as I said earlier, I think that we are connected to transformation, major transformations that happen. But these characters show up in Inanna's literature and they are not only connected to the temple where they had jobs, very particular jobs, important jobs, prophecy, lamentation, um, you know, birthing, show up for um, the funerals and help get people crossed over to the other side, um, singing and chanting and drumming and going to chants, um, go, going to trance is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, but also they accompany her on her quest for justice. So when she goes looking for this gardener fellow I told you about, they are with her. The whirlwind is with her and they are with her. And when she goes up against this mountain of perfection and, and melts it into a volcano, they're with her. They, they accompany her and she puts, she puts them in the, the temple. They are sort of like artists, but with extended powers. If, you, if, if the extended powers of artistry were respected all the way out for what they are, that would be Inanna's temple, <laughs> as I see it, you know, and I'm looking at it as a poet. I'm not looking at it the way Noah Kramer did as a scholar. I'm looking at it as a way your mother must have as a poet who loves the, the poetry, the literature of it. Yes. Yeah. So erotic power, have we saved the best for last of, of, course. The, of, of the three? <laughs> yeah. So talk to me about Inanna and erotic power or you and erotic power. I'd love to hear about, about it. Well, we have been talking about it, Rachel. When, when I talk about subtle body energies, those energies have an erotic component, their aesthetic at their best. You know, they, they infuse us with a sense of well-being and of love. It's good to seek them and fill yourself with that as differentiated from fear or anger, outrage, to fill yourself with those emanations that are really, really positive is a good thing because you, our love comes from us, from our hearts, but also comes from outside of us if we let it in. And that's, that's her. This is the fun, fun, fun part that she's the animation of life. They actually, one of her poets called her the first snake. And snake, as I know from talking to people in South India where the snakes continued to be protected, snakes are the animation of the earth. That's, you know, people would see all this energy 
and they were dealing with their own energies in various ways, drumming, dancing, holding hands in a circle, which balances out the, the energies. When people do that, the people with a lot pass it on, the people who are more grounded absorb it, and it evens out for the whole circle. That's a ritual, it's a very simple one, and it works. Recently, uh, you know, Inanna had so much, I mean, so many powers. She, she was almost a creation god by, by 2000, you know, when her poets had elevated her, especially the high priestess and Heduana elevated her, uh, meaning, and Heduana was uh, very science-minded. I think all of these poets were. They connected their religion to science, which is one of the things that has gone off the rails for, for mainstream US culture. Uh, the religion has drags its feet and tries to stop the science. Uh, and the science goes off with the materialists, which is equally disastrous. The early, the early scientists thought that religion would hold moral feet to the fire for science, but they didn't. Instead, they just denied the realities of it, as we see now today, to tragic, really tragic proportions. But the Sumerian poets, in my experience of reading them, they were describing the cosmos as they knew it so that other people could experience it the same sort of way every day. That was the sky. This was the earth. This was the salt water. This was the sweet drinkable water. And this is the moon. This is the moon full and this is the moon close to dark or dark because the female moon and the male moon was the full moon. And this is Inanna. And what is she is the question. And what I think the answer is, is she is the animation of life. And just like last week, some physicists ran two gold ions by each other. Uh, as, as waves, and it created a particle of matter, meaning that light energy can create matter when it smacks against itself in particular ways. Isn't that remarkable? That Whoa. means that Inanna is a creation principle, and she is just as contemporary as can be. One of the things that has struck me and sort of listening to interviews with you and dipping back and forth between your different writings, I can't remember exactly where I saw this, so forgive me, but you were talking somewhere about the difference between power and control. And that has struck me so deeply, I was thinking when I read that, that um, Adrian Rich has a has a phrase uh, that motherhood is like powerless responsibility. 
and I have three sons like Adrian Rich did and no daughters. I have no sisters. My mother passed away. My grandmothers are gone. I, I live very literally and figuratively in the world of men. And I think, and yet I have had almost all the responsibility. And I think that for really my whole adult life and my whole maternal life, the fear of this powerless responsibility made me try to get control because I never imagined that I could have any power. But if I think about power as the animation of life, of emergence, of imminence, of creation, not power as the ability to subjugate someone yeah. or something else. Right. I realize that that I've I have to rethink the whole notion of power and 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 stop with this constant chasing over control um, because I think that that's partly what's made me sick both figuratively and 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 quite literally and this idea just even the phrase erotic power to think about that not as like um simply uh i, I shahrazad came to mind uh -huh. and and uh vashti and esther came to mind you know that's one kind of erotic power that's that's usually sort of given to us um a, as a model but not that really the 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 erotic power of Inanna is something that I feel has been really hidden from mainstream culture. Yes, I I think that as well. I always go back to Butch and Femme, which I think are such important terms because I think they describe a genuine interactions that can be sexual, but they operate all the rest of the time as well, as that the femme part of ourselves is expressive, radiates this energy, uh, welcomes it in, women give it to each other, and that butch part of ourselves grounds it when it becomes too excited, when it becomes, you know, close to running off the rails is how I always yeah. describe it. But that those two things, those, those are polarity. You know, it's what a generator, you know, it's what a car battery runs on positive and negative. Um, but it's also the stereotypes of male and female line up that way. She used to be ungrounded in high heels in a red dress and gestures all over the place and but very fluid and this and this. And he used to be stolid, you know, in his straight black pants and black shoes that are flat on the ground, never smiling, 
grounding out for her. In India, we saw many rituals that used this principle. There would be a man who was embodying the goddess, which means he was really charged up with so much energy that he could dance all night and then do prophecy and then read a poem all day. And, and he would be grounded by a group of women who were sitting on the ground being extremely quiet, not moving. They were grounding the energy for him so that he could do this, all of this, have all this extra strength, have all this extra. And then we saw the opposite. We saw women who were in trance and they were about to fall over and they were prophesizing and some male relative would have a hold of them and be grounding them, make sure they didn't hurt themselves. So it's back and forth, but it's a polarity of energies. And it's like, we all need to understand that so that we don't reject the, the loving energy that wants to come and play with us all the time. And that we don't try to live there and become dipshits, you know, who can't do anything. <laughs> There's some kind of balance back and forth that needs to happen. And it's possible to do that, but you have to seek it out. For you, I would just recommend that you get in women's groups and see what that's like so that you do have input, 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 just to help your imagination, you know, with, with all, with these ideas and just see what happens. I would, I would add to that. I think that's really right. And the times that I had, like, I was just in a divorce support group for a while that turned out to, to be only women. And uh, really, it was very clear that um, it was cis women. Uh, all of us in this group happened to be mothers. And I think all of us were heterosexual. But without exception, each one of us was talking about questioning our sexual orientation, wanting to divorce the patriarchy as much or more than our husbands. Um, so we were entering a new kind of space and, and that, uh, that sisterhood was, was profoundly helpful and important. And I think one of the many losses for me right now is that my friends uh i'm the first one maybe the only but at least the first to get divorced um of my straight friends and that's a it's a it's a it's a tough place to be just in terms of feeling solidarity or feeling uh a shared experience with women at a time when i find I really only, I, I want more than ever to be with women and with queer people. And anyway, so I, I, I appreciate the, these recommendations and I take them very seriously. And I'll say that looking at your work and listening to your ideas has, has really allowed me to recognize the constraints of my imagination up until now and and start to envision uh, the blurring of those boundaries of those borders of the imaginative space. And I, you know, I, I really encourage people who have not 
uh, yet delved deeply into your work to do so um, for those reasons. Tell me, when is Touching Creatures coming out? Is it already out? It's out, yes. Huh? Oh, yes. fantastic. Yes. Um, yeah. And I love that idea of, of Eruptions of Inanna um, and Touching Creatures being sister books. Yeah, I um, like sister books, yeah. Yes. I have a third one, since we're on subject of books again, uh, that I'll, I'll show you. This is a poem, The Descent to the Roses of a Family. This is also using the descent myth uh, in a, a poem that I wrote in 1985, an anti-racist, anti-white supremacy poem that's called Descent to the Roses of a Family. It uses uh, two, two mythic structures in it, but mostly it is about how the white family teaches its members to project onto you know, what Lucia Birnbaum used to call dark others, you know, of various descriptions, but particularly uh, African-Americans. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've been teaching that in small groups of uh, four or five people. If you know people who are doing anti-racist work and they feel a little bit stuck, they really have delved into it, but something isn't quite moving, this could be uh, some kind of a, a uh, fluidity that could be added to it because it comes right back to one's own experiences and one's own family. And it's not about the racist out there. It's about how did we learn white supremacy? What is it covering up? What is it hiding that is hurting us? Oh, absolutely. Would you like to read from that book? Or is there anything you, you I, I usually, I ask people to read and I just got, I, I couldn't uh, even stop talking and listening long enough, but would you like to share something from any of the books that we were talking about? Well, we've been talking about eruptions. I could read uh, a couple passages from that. And then you had, you had expressed interest in the common woman poems. Yes. And commonality. You know, I, I think of myself now as a philosopher and I think of myself as a metaphoric philosopher. But younger people working with my work say that uh, if there's the philosophy that I am teaching is, should be called commonality. Mm. Uh, and that's interesting. Uh, and they've had me write about it, you know, because I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, it's through all your work. I said, where? I don't. And, and they just said, look at this and look at this and look at this over here and this whole poem and et cetera. So in any event, um, Commonality is the name of the Institute that promotes my work. And that's what I'm about to say. Um, you can you can Google Commonality Institute plus Gron, and you will come up with uh, a, a whole place that he he put has links to all kinds of things and descriptions of the books. And uh, we run classes. He does drag workshops, mm. and he does uh, he's been doing a residency. The uh, obviously the the COVID outbreak has put a crimp on that. He's located down in uh, New Orleans. Uh, but when it starts up again, Rachel, I would encourage you to um, 
sign up for a residency. It's, you know, two to six weeks in New Orleans, whatever art you're into. He promotes it. He gets the people around it. If it's scholarship you want to do, he's there for that too. He understands my work really second only to me and my, my spouse, Chris, um, which is really saying a lot. And who is this? Who's running? His name the is Gregory Gages. Uh, and it's just, it's Common, Commonality Institute. He's doing a great job with the website. So anyway, and he's the one who, he published the, the chapbook that I just told you about, which is the poem plus teaching notes uh, that I've added to it. But let me just read something about the Sumerian thing. When, when the clay tablets, the Sumerians poets left in the sand were found and translated 4,000 years later, they contained some of the world's richest literature, creation stories, a flood myth, dramatic hero journeys, even instructions for farming. The poems are teeming with interesting deities and dramatic stories. No one received more attention from the poets than Inanna, the third brightest light in the sky as Venus, so vividly brilliant in the Western firmament that you can see her eight points with the naked eye. Small wonder that in the imaginations of the ancient Sumerians, when she clipped low on the horizon, she easily stepped onto the earth, sat next to people in the tavern, hung out with horses in the stable, and avidly took part in human affairs. She was a consummate shapeshifter, and her poets and artists used many different images to describe her, including lion, bird, snake, dragon, beloved of the sky god, receiver of cosmic powers, sovereign lady of blazing dominion, queen of heaven and earth. My favorite passionate name for Inanna, written well over 4,000 years ago, is the poet Enheduanna calling out to her, oh, my wild ecstatic cow. What made the goddess Inanna wild and ecstatic, as well as having blazing dominion? She is a combination of human, creature, erotic, and other energetic forces, plus civilization. She also inherited very old powers that grew out of women's rituals. So we've been talking about that, but, uh, but that's one piece about her. And I wanna read another one too while I'm at it, about her love. I don't think her love is, is well enough understood. Inanna is wherever any kind of passion erupts. Inanna is part of all joyful processions of Mardi Gras, of Carnival, even of the Rose Bowl Parade, as well as any tavern gatherings and parties. Inanna is present in free trade, free choice with its risk of mistakes or ruinous loss. Her justice converts bad deeds into something more positive. She has the capacity like nature to reinvent herself. Finally, Inanna sacralizes a remarkable range of, gender, of genders with erotic energy permeating the most beautiful, artful, 
and most mundane of experiences. Her love is both explicitly sexual and diffusely erotic. It's invitational and non-judgmental. Her love is compassionate, tender, and familial. Her love is conscious. She advocates for choice, which is not the same as mandatory inclusion. Her love is not unconditional. She protects women's autonomy, including sexual autonomy, authority, and multiple powers. She protects children, families, and wives. She protects leaders, warriors, and workers, including prostitutes. She creates, protects, and employs cross-gendered people and provides sacred positions for them in her stories and rituals. She inhabits intuition. She is very passionate. Above all, she protects nature and is the animation of nature, an intelligent, formative, relational, interactive, communicative, compassionate, balancing, and co-evolving force in the cosmos. She is in the process of becoming. Mm. Yes. It's what I learned about her, you know, just by reading very closely her stories and retelling them. When you do that, you sort of incorporate it. Mm -hmm. Like that's incorporated. So lastly, I'm bringing out a collection that Red Hen put out, Love Belongs to Those Who Do the Feeling. And um, you had requested a couple of things. So let me just start with a little bit of common woman poems. As I said earlier, I needed a women's support group. And the one that I tried to go to for consciousness raising was so rawly homophobic that I couldn't, and I didn't know how to change them. I didn't know how to confront them. There wasn't any language yet for how you would do that or instructions. There was just, you could either be mad or, or walk out and do something else. And so I walked out and wrote these poems. And this is the one that I designated as the, the lesbian. And it starts like this. It's called Carol in the Park Chewing on Straws. She has taken a woman lover, whatever shall we do? She has taken a woman lover, how lucky it wasn't you. And all the day through, she smiles and lies and grits her teeth and pretends to be shy or weak or busy. Then she goes home and pounds her own nails, makes her own bets, and fixes her own car with her friend. She goes as far as women can go without protection from men. On weekends, she dreams of becoming a tree, a tree that dreams it is ground up and sent to the paper factory, where it lies helpless in sheets until it dreams of becoming a paper airplane and rises on its own current where it turns into a bird, a great coasting bird that dreams of becoming more free even than that. A feather, finally, or a piece of air with lightning in it. She has taken a woman lover, whatever can we say? She walks around all day quietly, but underneath it, she's electric. 
angry energy inside a passive form. The common woman is as common as a thunderstorm. So that was, yes, yes in 1969, when uh, the gay women's liberation movement was just starting and believe me, the people who came to join it had nothing passive about themselves and weren't in the closet and were very proudly to uh, being lightning storms. <laughs> but I was addressing these poems to ordinary people who were still really immersed in, in being in the closet. And every one of the poems ends with a line about their commonality. And that's where that whole idea came from. The common woman is as common as the reddest wine. The common woman is as solemn as a monkey or a new moon. The common woman is as common as good bread, as common as when you couldn't go on, but did. For all the world, we didn't know we held in common all along. The common woman is as common as the best of bread and will rise and will become strong. I swear it to you. I swear it to you on my own head. I swear it to you on my common woman's head. So common then became a thing and there was common lives lesbian lives was a magazine out of iowa city and a common woman band and common woman bookstores and common woman newspapers and then adrienne you know in search of a common language and audrey common differences just and then i've gone on with it with common mind and you know various other things like that without even realizing that I was doing it, that commonality was so much a part of our movement, was so much about um, leveling the fields, you know, studying, you know, not, not creating new hierarchies, but leveling the fields. And that's what I think a generation needs to learn is that if you're going to have a movement, you have to level the fields. You cannot uh, start with a hierarchy and expect to end up with something that isn't monopoly capitalism <laughs> because you just, you won't. Thank you for, um, for reading those pieces and, you know, for responding when I sent you my, my notes, like I've just been thinking a lot about why I named the podcast Commonplace uh, was, you know, really close to what you're talking about in the sense that of both wanting that conversation is the commonplace between people of the coming together of the mind of the body you know before COVID I always did these face to face and that was very important to me to be to either have someone in my home or to be in someone else's place, their space, their aura, their energy. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm still so grateful, you know, to be able to virtually be together. But originally, I felt that I wanted the podcast, which was so ethereal, to have at one point been grounded in the physical proximity of two human beings in one moment and time and place but i also wanted 
something that was anti-monumental, right? So the, the idea of the commonplace, the everyday, the, yeah, the banal, yeah. the mundane, the, yeah, you know, yeah. the overlooked, the domestic, the, you know, the, the, you know, poetry, one sort of definition of poetry that I don't connect to very strongly is rarefied language. But one, one part of poetry that I connect so deeply to is the incantation or the, the incantatory ritual, the song, the embodied, the philosophy, even if it's the embodied uh, philosophical. Um, and so the, like, what, what are the commonplace moments and practices of artists and poets, what are the where, where are the places that people can come together to learn from each other to make those connections. Judy, is there anything that that you hoped that I would ask you or that you wanted to ask me um, or anything I'm forgetting or that I uh, misrepresented in some way. Oh, no, no, Rachel, I, this has just been totally delightful. Uh, the fact that you, you're just immersed in it so much and so, uh, you know, avid to learn from all this work, which is this work has just been teaching me my whole life. It's not as though I'm wise and then I write. I write and then I get a little smarter, you know, mm -hmm. because it's always a research project. So I'm always interacting with and engaging with others, whether they lived 4,000 years ago or I just met them. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we're gonna put links to, you know, all your books and, you know, uh, your writing, but, but tell people if they want to study with you, where are you currently teaching? Okay, yes, I'm going to have Gregory post something about the classes. I'll ask him to do this. I don't know how long it will take. Well, you know, we're teaching these the anti-racist um, groups, just doing them one at a time. I do them with my colleague, Diane Jeanette, and we co-hold we co the groups, and we also participate. We are, uh, we learn as well, and, it, and we're doing it selectively, so it's by invitation. The other thing we're teaching, we're teaching eruptions of Inanna and using the descent myth, using your mother's work, really, using that text, using my interpretations with some promptings. And the secret of it, you were asking about transpersonal uh, psychology, which is transpersonal is just a word they made up because they didn't dare use the word spirit, spiritual. Mm -hmm. They thought that it, the academy would have nothing to do with them if they did that, so they made up another word. Um, but it really just means a connected mind, body, you know, emotions, art, using art, using body movement, um, as well as uh, as readings in your head and in your intellect. It's using all of it, head, head, heart mind, spirit, Sometimes your spiritual experiences can be part of what you're talking about or painting about or whatever. So we use those techniques in the class and it works really well. And if you would like to engage with this class, uh, we do charge for it. 
what is sliding scale. And we're, we'll start another one in the fall mm. and I will send you an invitation if you're Wonderful. interested. Oh, yes, so much. Okay. Well, Judy, thank you just from with my whole heart for sharing your time and your energy and your work and your love and your wisdom and your humor, uh, <laughs> you know, with with me and your readers and your students and the listeners. Um, it's I'm really deeply grateful. Um, I feel uh, really blessed to get the chance to have this connection with you at this moment in time. Um, and I, I just want you to know that how how grateful I am for you and oh. your work. Well, thank you. Thank you. This has just been a total delight, Rachel. I, I enjoyed I our conversation that. very, very much. To the Holy One who appears in the heavens, I say hail to the Holy Priestess of Heaven. I say hail to Anana. You've been listening to episode 96 of Commonplace with poet, scholar, and activist Judy Gron. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced by me, Valentine Conady, Langa Chinyoka, and Christine LaRusso. Many thanks to Nightboat Books, Red Hen Press, and Ant Loot Books. The music you're listening to was composed and performed by Jeffrey Gordon to accompany Diane Wokstein in her telling of Inanna, Queen of Heaven and Earth. Thank you for listening. To you, Inanna, we sing.